150 years ago in 1859 during the Carrington event, we were at about, you know, 98, 99% strength in the field. In fact, they noticed that was the year things really started to change in terms of the magnetic field weakening and the magnetic poles shifting their position. It was the year of the Carrington event when that actually happened. Are we just one solar blast away from not only losing our way of life, our electrified way of life, but seeing the tipping point for the magnetic reversal of the planet? I happen to think so. I happen to think that's exactly how it goes down. The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Where most of the elite and their minions are pushing climate change and a multi-trillion dollar global tax, should we listen and comply? What if instead of global warming, it is global cooling, a new ice age? Could this be the real killer? If our governments knew of an impending extension level event, would they tell us? Could the derecho storm currently affected the Midwest disrupt our food supply? Did you know the Arecibo radio telescope went dark on August the 10th after a snap cable shredded the dish? Are we in the dark now when it comes to incoming celestial objects? This and much more tonight on Veritas. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Ben Davidson, known to many from uh, of you from his YouTube channel, Suspicious Observers. Ben is founder of the Mobile Observatory Project, creator of the Suspicious Observers YouTube channel, providing daily solar and space weather updates since 2011, with almost half a million subscribers. Runs spaceweathernews.com, the creator of the Disaster Prediction app. And as many of you have told me, Ben Davidson is most likely more knowledgeable than many of the most highly trained in the study of climatology and the study of solar radiance. He has many websites, and I have them all linked at veritasradio.com. Ben Davidson joins us from the new Valley of the Sun. Hello, Ben, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Doing very well. Happy to be back. Ben, for the past few months, it's become almost the norm to ask my guests how the censorship is affecting them. This censorship is now out of control, and you are not an exception. Tell us of your experience with the tech tyranny first. Well, for a long time, the YouTube channel uh, doesn't quite get the same level of boosting that certain other kinds of videos get. Uh, in fact, there's uh, throttling of views. There's uh, failure to notify the subscribers that new videos have been posted. Uh, failure to deliver those videos into what they call their, you know, the the feed on YouTube that shows them all the new stuff. Uh, that's been going on for quite a long time. About uh, two weeks ago, there was uh, an issue where all of a sudden I realized my posts on Facebook aren't getting any sort of engagement whatsoever. And, you know, usually, uh, usually there's, you know, a few hundred people engaging with every single post I make. And I realized that this had been going on for a couple of days. And so I started asking around if anybody could, could see my posts and, you know, no, nobody could see anything I was posting. In fact, there were, 
I checked the messages portion, which I normally can't check because there's you know literally dozens of messages that come in every single day, and I have to either pick email or or you know Facebook messages, and I I generally pick email. But, you know, even they were starting to say, "Hey, where'd you go? What happened to you? What's going on?" And it turns out they had blocked everyone except me and my wife from seeing my posts, and so they were letting her see. Because the, it, and you know it's the kind of thing where it's like literally they were just getting me and my wife the ability to see this, almost in like the most devilishly sneaky way of trying to hide this. Like, oh yeah, well he's gonna figure it out eventually. But hey, if we if we trick his wife too, maybe it'll be a few more days before they figure it out. Kind of thing, you know. I mean, it's not the kind of thing we'd never figure out, but. It just, it really kind of was frustrating. And I know that my wife, um, she was not really in disbelief of all the censorship things that I was describing to her and that she was reading. Um, but she was sort of surprised and shocked to have it be so, so close to it. And for those who don't know, my wife, Catherine, is the CEO of Space Weather News. So, um, you know, she's she's tied into all this stuff too, very much aware of all the things that people are going through. Uh, luckily, when we figured it out, I mentioned it in my morning show. Uh, I told people, hey, maybe you guys want to help me complain to Facebook. Uh, literally within about nine hours, everything was fine and every single one of my posts was visible again. Um, not quite the same luck on YouTube. I'm getting record numbers of people suggesting that um, – they have been unsubscribed from my channel and they yeah. don't know why that they have subscribed and what's called clicked the notification bell. And yet they don't get notified when new videos come out. They'll sit there and all of a sudden four or five days later, one of my videos will pop up in their feed and they'll realize, Hey, wait a minute. Why wasn't that shown to me three or four days ago? And what the heck happened to everything between the last three or four days? Why haven't I been, shown that and so essentially <clears throat> it's the kind of thing where a lot of people will end up uh meeting resistance to their wanting to watch the video every day which is a a, a crazy ridiculous thing that's happening in 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 today's world shadow bad shadow bad this is the the worst type of censorship what, one thing is for them to demonetize you or shut you down but they're doing it, as you said, in a very sneaky way. They do it so that you lose subscribers and you don't know why. You do it by—they just throttle you, throttle the number of subscribers, throttle the number of views. And that way people perceive you as being—I'm not saying lower quality, but you know how some people are. Oh, if this video doesn't have 100,000 views, I'm not going to watch it. So they're doing that with a lot of people, and it's getting so tiresome that every week I have to ask the same question. The question is— What's the end game? Where, where is this going if it continues unimpeded? Right. Uh, I, I wish I had an answer for that. I don't think it's anywhere pretty. Just so, if I had to guess. The tech tyranny. This is going to be the new government. But let's let's just begin. I mean, I just wanted to have the first five minutes to to allow you to tell us what's going on with all the censorship which is happening everywhere. You put a lot of material, Ben, a lot of material almost on a daily basis. What... What keeps you going? Uh, I don't know. I'd like to say the sun. Uh, I'd like to say inertia. Uh, I really do love what I'm doing. Um, at this point with three children, some kind of work is necessary every day. So uh, if I have to do something, I would probably choose to do this other than anything else. Uh, I know this is something I've I've been better at than I've been at most other things. And uh, it feels like it's the right thing I should be doing right now. This is one of those situations, you know, sometimes, sometimes you want, uh, you know, all of the all-stars at your back. And the other time you want to go play for the underdog. Uh, this is a situation where if you've got your head screwed on straight, you'll take the odds and put on the underdog's jersey here. I think that's it's not hard to keep mostly going. what most of us want to do. Just rule for the underdog. That's, it just feels much better. So this interview, Ben, is being recorded on August the 19th. I want to mention this because 
According to some news sources, they're stating that a weak solar flare measure B1.2 at its peak erupted on August the 16th, producing a coronal mass ejection, CME, and the consensus model results suggest an arriving glancing blow on August the 20th, meaning tomorrow. NOAA and NOAA models of the CME suggest that a glancing blow is likely. Storm levels could reach category G1, and you'll explain what that is. This would be the day after we're recording this, and I want to leave it for the record. So do you expect any tangible results from this CME to affect Earth? No, not in particular. I am curious which report you were looking at there. I have a few. I have a few. I mean, there's NASA, there's science, there's a bunch of others. I don't have the links, but I can send it to you later. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, I don't think there's much chance of, of anything major happening. Um, if something happens with a little with a little blip like this, then uh, the global grids are not going to survive the next sunspot cycle, put it that way. Um, this is the kind of thing where, you know, Half a decade ago, we were taking a hundred, a thousand times bigger than this, no problem. And um, it was when we we'd get the ones that are maybe ten thousand times bigger that we we, we would see the actual, um, you know, they're pulling airplanes out of the sky, they're rerouting polar flights, they're doing shed loads and major power grids because there's more current than they put in it. Um, we we probably have to be about five to ten thousand times bigger than what's coming right now before we start to get concerned. How prepared is our power grid in the United States and other countries to sustain even this small one or a bigger one? Well, you know, this small one again is nothing. We uh, this is the kind of thing we probably saw a hundred thousand tiny little things like this over the last decade and a half. And in the next decade, we're going to see about 100,000 more. This is really um, everyone's sort of losing their minds over this because it's the first thing the sun has tossed our way in the new solar cycle. But it really is um, nothing to be concerned about at all. Um, I will definitely be letting folks know when we're in trouble when the sun does something. Um, but maybe, you know, some low-level auroras, you know, some nice northern lights. It's certainly possible. Um, to be honest, what's following that will be what's called a coronal hole stream. Uh, it's a part of the sun that instead of putting out a burst, it just steadily puts out stronger and stronger solar wind streams. And um, one of those is going, you know, basically going to be following that CME, that coronal mass ejection. And I would say that actually has a better chance of being something major than, uh, than the actual CME does. Is there a correlation between, say, solar minimum and CMEs and solar maximums and the CME intensity-wise? Um, really, the only difference is how many of them there are. Solar maximum and minimum is based on how many sunspots there are. When there are sunspots and there are, um, you know, when they're active on the surface of the sun, chances are they're putting out some kind of CMEs. And so just really the only difference is how many of them there are. Um, in general, because there's, uh, you know, 50 to 80 times more in the five to six years of sunspot maximum than in sunspot minimum. Yes. In general, the CMEs there happen to be the biggest, uh, simply because that's where literally almost all of them are. You know, we had, um, maybe in the last two or three years of sunspot minimum, you know, maybe 10 tiny, tiny little CMEs from filament snaps and what they call stealth CME activity. Um, we could see that over the span of a day and a half, you know, in two years from now when sunspot maximum is really rocking and rolling. Uh, what I've really been telling folks is, uh, look, uh, listen, when I say that this is not only a tiny, tiny CME, but it's not even a direct impact. It's going to be a glancing blow, kind of like somebody brushes by your shoulders kind of thing. Oh, and they're not running at full speed. You're, you're both just kind of casually walking. Nobody's getting knocked over. You know, you, you, you might know that you got brushed by, uh, over on the shoulder with somebody, but it's not even hard enough for you to turn your head with a cockeyed look like, excuse you. You know, it, it's not even going to be like that. And um, what I've been telling folks is if something like this is starting to get get your nerves itching, 
I recommend a number of breathing exercises because when the sun really kicks in for sunspot maximum, these people are going to have a heart attack. Um, it's going to get a lot scarier, and uh, we haven't seen anything from the sun yet. She's yawning, stretching, just waking up. How long before it wakes up, in your opinion? At this rate, we'll probably um, we'll probably begin to see some some stronger eruptions towards the end of the year, or maybe early next year. And they'll probably, you know, slowly build up to a maximum uh, over the next year and a half to two years after that, uh, and then sort of descend for about two years after that. And then we'll be going back into the minimum. So every 11 years, same cycle, just the poles shifting, correct? The, pole, the solar poles. Yeah, the, the sun's poles shifting. Okay. So before I ask you the following question, I want to say that I don't believe in man-made climate change, although we should do what we can to help the environment. I just don't want to assist the elite in imposing a multi-trillion dollar tax to allegedly mitigate this. just want to just put that disclaimer. Now, according to scientists, Greenland's melting ice sheet has passed at the point of no return. In fact, glaciers on the island have shrunk so much that even if global warming were to stop today, the ice sheet would continue shrinking. A new study suggests, Ben, just like we have weather on Earth, there's space weather, how much would sea level rise if the Greenland ice sheet melted? And what is causing this event in Greenland and the repercussions if it continues? Uh, well, um, it's really not certain how much sea level rise. They throw a lot of numbers out there. Uh, I know last year... I went to, uh, I took a little trip over to the place where I used to go to a beach with my grandparents. And uh, things are still in the water at the same place that they were last time. Water still hits the same part of the dock. Yep. Um, you know, I believe that maybe high tides get rougher. When there's a storm, the storm surges might get a little rougher and things like that. Uh, in general, as far as I've been alive, and from what my grandparents describe in their 50 years of going to this place, there's been no sea level rise. Um, it's basically been how how volatile is it? You know, yes, high tide is a little higher. Like, you know, low tide might be a little lower. Uh, it's other things like that. Now, in terms of Greenland specifically, um, Greenland's an interesting character. There's parts of the mainland that on the hottest day of summer aren't going to break freezing never going to happen in fact on the mainland greenland is actually gaining snow and ice weight uh, it's just that around the coastal regions especially where uh, some of the ocean currents are really helping to do so um, the sea ice and the glaciers that have tongues that have pushed out onto you know coastal regions and onto the sea those are melting at a fairly significant rate and that's probably unlikely to stop there's probably geothermal issues as well just like uh, it was 2015 i believe when the university of texas was among a number of universities that discovered hey that one area of antarctica that's melting faster than all the others there's a giant volcano erupting under the ice right there um we could have something uh, to that effect, probably not a giant volcano erupting, but some sort of geothermal um, you know, assistance as well. Some of the changes to the Gulf Stream have stopped all of the you – know, it, it has stopped all of the push that normally went up towards Europe. Some of the little tangential currents are going and um, you know, hitting Greenland as well, even on the western side of it. Um, there's a number of things that are contributing to it. And, you know, the interesting thing is what people need to remember is we're so lucky right now that we've got the ice locked at the polar region of this planet. Because when the ice is locked at the polar region of this planet, we tend to get nice, temperate, interglacial warmth here at the mid and low latitudes. And when you start to disrupt the systems, Earth has a number of ways of correcting itself. In fact, we are getting to the point where um, in history, Earth tends to throw itself into ice ages when things get as they are now. Uh, and it's not just because, um, you know, of what some people have heard called orbital variability with Milankovitch cycles. Yes, there does appear to be a 
you know, a cycle of ice ages of about a hundred thousand years. And, um, it does look like we are about due, but it, it's also because it's being sped up by this ice melt. The oceans, you know, much like you may have heard uh, before, they need this salt balance, this the salinity differential. They need these currents and heat transport uh, of the hot water, the cold water, and it's like a wrench in an engine. It can be really easily thrown off. And once it's thrown off in one area, the entire engine can seize. And, and while that's happening, what you're actually doing is you're adding cold, fresh water to the ocean. When a giant iceberg breaks off, it's breaking off from an area that as soon as winter comes around, that area is going to freeze again, guaranteed. Um, icebergs don't break off in the middle of winter time, put it that way. And... Um, so the area is going to refreeze and all you've done is chipped off an ice cube and tossed it into the ocean only for you to go back around a year later and say, wait a minute, it looks like that ice cube is, is right back where we put it. So essentially what this does is it screws up the salt balance. It screws up the temperature flows and the heat transport. It screws up things like um, the overturning circulation in the Atlantic the Gulf Stream, uh, the Kuroshio Current, which is very similar to the Gulf Stream, except that one runs uh, along Japan. Uh, these are what we owe our warm climate to, really, at, at least in terms of getting out of the tropical areas. And that's what we're at real risk of seeing shut down. It's not like the movie Day After Tomorrow where it happens in a week and we're a new, you know, in a new ice age, but it doesn't take – decades for that to happen once we cross that threshold we can only dump so much ice so much cold fresh water into the ocean before the engine is going to seize and she's going to throw us back into an ice age you know the, the earth doesn't let us get too far in one direction or another even the snowball earth scenario you know where an ice where a glaciation happens and it actually further leads to an ice age and causes more snow and more ice and it reflects even more sunlight out into space and we get colder and colder until literally the entire earth is a snowball it's happened two or three times they think in earth's history well when that happens you've frozen so much water out of the atmosphere snow and ice there's virtually no more clouds there's no more cloudy days there's no more snow there's no more precipitation there's just getting blasted by sunlight and eventually in that scenario your planet is going to warm rapidly, very, very rapidly, especially with the UV uh, light and infrared light that is trapped as heat under the ice and is building and is building and is building. And so the planet won't let us go in one direction for too long or in too rapid of a pace either. Um, and that's, that's really what we're seeing right here. We have been enduring what truly amounts to maybe – slightly above average rate of climate change the last century. There's not necessarily a reason to think it's not due to the fact that Earth's magnetic field has begun weakening again for the first time uh, since the Gothenburg magnetic excursion over 12,000 years ago. And um, really it's, uh, it's the kind of complex puzzle that, as you mentioned, the same – the same kind of folks who want to do this tech tyranny also want to do uh, intellectual tyranny on this one and policy tyranny on this one and tax tyranny on this one. Uh, pretty much everything you described. It's, it's much more complex and the earth just won't let what they think and what they keep telling us is going to happen, the earth just has no plans on letting that happen whatsoever. In fact, in the most unbelievable irony, while they've got everybody looking one direction in the climate future crystal ball, she's sneaking up from behind us in the other direction. Because as I said, for whatever reason, even if it's just the orbital variability, we are right on the precipice of another ice age, overdue by many um, by many accounts. So what is, is costing, what it is. What is costing, and we'll discuss this impending ice age in a few moments, but what is costing the Gulf Stream to change? That would be that, that cold, fresh water that's being injected in there beginning to seize the engine. Um, 
you know, you can think of it as um, <laughs> if you can think of cold, fresh water in this way to this engine, it's like sludge. We're just dumping it in there and it's getting harder and harder to do what it wants to do. And so, um, you know, what happens there is you get uh, a loss of heat transport from the tropics to the north uh, Atlantic. The area freezes more in winter. And um, because it is loose uh, sea ice around places like Norway, uh, Scotland, places like that, um, it's going to melt very, very rapidly again when summer comes. And so you're going to have this, this weird sort of volatility cycle. It's sort of going to be like the canary in the coal mine for it where there's going to be a major sea ice freeze at much lower latitude than is expected. It's all going to melt in summer, and then it's going to go back and forth. And then all of a sudden, just they're going to be expecting the heat transport from the Gulf Stream one summer, and it's just not going to come. It's just not going to get there. It's going to be like there was no summer. And um, after that, we sort of descend back into a, a colder epoch. Are you saying that this is more or less what happened in... 1739 and 1740 in uh, Ireland, the Great Freeze? Uh, no, not really. That was uh, a, a few other things. Um, you know, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. If you could find a way to go put a Jupiter-sized black cloth in front of the sun, you know, right in between us and the sun where the moon is, you're going to freeze this planet real fast. Um, there's a lot of ways to, to do it here. Uh, what happened back then was uh, a number of different factors lining up in a very bad way, um, including uh, some natural cycles, bad luck with jet streams and polar vortex, and uh, also bad timing with a volcanic eruption. Now, I've seen videos of two types of oceans meeting. One is dark and one is lighter. What causes that effect, the two bodies of water that do not mix? Well, um, they do mix eventually. Um, and if you were to follow that boundary between the oceans all the way north and south, it doesn't look like that everywhere. Um, that would be an area where there is certainly less mixing, uh, but there's also um, more of a... Um, more of a flowing across the surface. And then as they meet, they're both sort of diving downward at, you know, beneath the surface levels, uh, such that there's actually kind of like a churning cell inside. And we're really seeing just the skin outside of it. Um, that really is an interesting sight. Uh, I've seen a couple of those videos of, of, of people there where the oceans meet right. and, Especially at certain times of year, yeah, there are places where you can literally go, you know, I think a couple hundred miles north and south, and it's going to look like a like the oceans have drawn a line. Uh, you on this side, you on the other side. I just wonder if you take a, a sample, you know, a bucket from one side and a bucket from the other side and then put it under a microscope, could you see a different mineral composition for each body of water? Um. You do in that area, it's largely because uh, in that specific part, and I think it's, is that where the Pacific and Indian Ocean is? I think meet, so, or? right. Um, so there's an enormous underground ridge right where, where the one is, and basically there's a strong underground current that hits this ridge and then bends to the north. As it hits that ridge and bends to the north, it, you know, it pushes things up, it pushes things sideways. And basically, you have about three to four times the silt and and sand and 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 dust and cloudiness of the water on one side than you do on the other side of that current. And you might even have because it's you know been under pressure and velocity, maybe even um, you know other temperature uh, gradients and other things like that that help to separate the cells. Uh, it's tough to say, and I do know, again, that at some times of year, it is stronger than others. Um, I, I do think that the under the underwater explanations of where the color differences come from make a lot of sense. Because if I remember correctly, on the other side, it's basically 
you know, crisp, clear, unimpeded, um, unpolluted by man or nature or otherwise, meeting an area that's just going to naturally be a little bit dustier. Here's the quote-unquote scientific explanation. Why do the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean not mix? It's not two oceans meeting. It's glacial melt water meeting the offshore waters of Gulf of the Gulf of Alaska. The reason for this strange phenomenon is due to the difference of water density, temperature, and salinity of the glacial melt water and offshore waters of the Gulf of Alaska, making it difficult to mix, according to them. The Gulf of Alaska yeah. is what affects... We're talking about the oceans that meet south of Australia, correct? That's right. Yeah, there's something there's something wrong necessarily with that explanation. Uh, in terms of the color difference, uh, I do think that, you know, as I mentioned, there probably is some slight difference in the uh, how, how you put it in in, you know, in the metallicity and the chemistry of them, whether or not it's something that's happening at the Gulf of Alaska. Uh, that's a, it's a strange explanation because it's uh it's all the way lots down. Of explanations for many things. Yeah. Lots of strange explanations for many things. Now, I frequently spend time in a region of Mexico known for having one of the most dramatic high and low tides. What causes the tides and does the moon or the sun cause the extreme highs and lows? Well, the moon and the sun completely control the tides. And, um, you know, whenever they, they line up, I mean, I'm sure you know about king tides or uh, if you've ever heard of a king tide. Basically, um, that's when you've got sort of the lunar cycle pole and the solar cycle pole lining up strongest uh, together. Uh, doesn't happen all the time. Uh, but in general, um, while the kind of plasma physics that I'm into has a little bit of a different explanation than a warping of space-time for the attractiveness of gravity, the attraction of gravity is still a thing. It still makes the tides. Big things still have it, much more than little things. And uh, that, that one's probably well explained. So you're saying that these extremes only happen infrequently based on the sun or the moon. But if you had to look at global climate change, that's not the case. We're not expecting that to happen consistently. It's just once in a while. From, from in terms of the, something like a king tide, yeah, they, right. they have those forecasts well in advance. You could probably go and look up when the next king tide was going to be for that area. Um, Probably, probably would actually be be a fairly quick thing to find on the internet, um, but yeah, there there are just natural explanations for that as well. Um, really, the only things that change it are are the wind, the weather, things like that. Is there a storm or is it a sunny day? Right, and here's a meteorological term I've never heard before until a few days ago: a derecho. Let's define it. A derecho is a widespread, long-lived, straight-line windstorm that is associated with a fast-moving group of severe thunderstorms known as mesoscale convective system and potentially rivaling hurricane, hur hurricanic and tornadic forces. Derechos can cause hurricane force winds, tornadoes, heavy rains, and flash floods. Now, a devastating derecho ravaged the Midwest crops a few days ago. What causes a derecho... And how often, how will this latest one affect our food supply, if any? Oh, this isn't going to affect our food supply in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. Um, you know, I mean, about as much as, you know, pulling out a hair or two is going to affect how bald you look. Um, <laughs> I, I was in the 2012 derecho that hit uh, the I states and ran through Columbus, Ohio, which is where I was at the time. Um, pretty much stopped when it hit the Appalachians, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not like it's some kind of, um, freak thing that necessarily needs a different explanation than the one that, that's out there. Uh, it's one of the more extreme, uh, non cyclonic storms that you can have. Um, it results when there's a major differential of energy, uh, a lot of heat uh, and there's 
the movement of pressure systems across uh, an area in a very significant manner. Um, it doesn't take anything necessarily that out of the ordinary. Um, we do expect them to happen every once in a while. Um, you know, it's it, it stinks, but uh, they just happen. Um, they they tend to happen about once a year in the United States. Usually not as bad as what happened this year and what happened in 2012. Those are, you know, they talk about what happened in 2012 was kind of like a benchmark historic year for the derecho event. Um, I actually don't think the one this year was quite as bad, actually. Um, but no, yeah, it's not uh, the kind of thing that, you know, basically wiped states worth of crops off the map. Um, you know, it, it's like somebody yanked out a couple hairs off your head. And yeah, if you don't have that many hairs, maybe you're sensitive to something like that. But, <laughs> but, but um, you see, I lived in the Caribbean. I lived in Florida. So I went through many hurricanes, but at least we get a few days, maybe a week, maybe even two weeks sometimes where we see it coming and we can prepare. But how come Iowa only had 40 minutes? What makes these derecho storms so special then? Well, you know, there's there's no real way to tell exactly. Um, it's kind of like, okay, somebody may have just heard the tornado sirens and that was the first thing they heard. But I'm pretty sure that their weathermen were telling folks, hey, there's going to be severe weather tonight. In this day and age, you know, uh, we were able to, you know, know that there was going to be a line of severe storms in the region uh, three or four days ahead of time. Now, did we know it was going to be a derecho? No. Did we think that there was a chance for a derecho or powerful winds or even for it to drop a significant number of tornadoes? Absolutely. But it's the kind of thing where um, if there's going to be severe weather, um, you have the possibility for it to be extremely severe or for you just to be in the worst part of it. And some years, the worst is going to be worse than other years. Um, there's no way that anyone could have forecasted that it would have hit derecho strength uh, any more than somebody could have said, hey, we're on high tornado alert today. Um, you know, somebody might be able to even tell you, hey, we have a good chance of tornadoes today, but they can't tell you whether it's going to be the church on the south side of town or the mayor's house on the north side of town that's more at risk. You got to be kidding. You got to wait till the storms develop and then we'll see where, where, you know, where the rotation is, things like that. Um, it's like dropping a grain of sand in a toilet and then trying to predict where it's going to land in a sewer somewhere just by dropping it in a toilet. If you want to look at where a tornado is going to be, which region is going to get hit by the strongest winds of a derecho, um, unless you know, it's literally in just those minute, uh, minutes when it's developing. They don't really say you're under a tornado threat until they see the rotation. And then they up the watch when it's on the ground because there are some elements of it that you just can't predict. You see, I wonder, and I'm not saying that a lot of these things are man-made, but I remember a couple of years ago when I saw the new Cloud Atlas that it had a new type of cloud. We haven't had that cloud in a long time. All of a sudden, it surfaces. Homo mutatus. And if you know Latin, you realize that homo meaning human, mutatus. Could it be all these chemtrails and now they're, the, the, the meteorologists are calling it homo mutatus? And they're then actually, it, they actually mean homo is insane. Uh, oh, there you go. But Homo versus hetero as opposed to go. homo sapiens. So uh, they, they mean uh, sort of a uniformly mutating cloud and one of the reasons we're seeing these changes is because again the magnetic field of this planet is changing in a tremendous way the light is hitting it differently there's more cosmic rays coming in there's different heat transport in terms of an evaporative standpoint the global electric circuit plays an enormous role in in cloud production sustaining clouds and how opaque the clouds are um all of these things are changing in the exact ways that we would expect them to actually change. And I will say this. I know for a fact, just put it this way, when NASA is admitting to spraying aluminum oxide out of sounding rockets in the upper atmosphere, 
there's stuff going on that we don't know about in terms of spraying the sky. At the same time, the most credible whistleblower I've ever seen says the actual sky spray technology is invisible. If you see it, that's normal condensation trails. The majority of photos and videos I see on the internet of people calling out chemtrails, I'm sorry, they're just wrong. People don't actually know what they're looking at. Um, and this is coming from someone who says it is a real thing and they are doing it. But really looking up and looking up at a white trail and calling a chemtrail is generally wrong, thinking that, oh, I'm seeing the sky gridded out and it looks soupy and, and things like that. Nope, not chemtrails. And this is from somebody who's telling you it's a real thing and it's being done in secret. What I'm saying is literally things like geoengineering watch, chemtrails net, literally almost everyone you've heard about has been digging us a hole. Most of them, specifically uh, the big ones like geoengineering watch, that is a CIA website. Dane so, is absolutely a plant. Um, you're saying Dane Wigginton is a plant? Absolutely. Either that or he's actually the dumbest person on the planet. Uh, what he's doing is exact. If I was evil and I had the money and I needed to pull a fraud on a whole bunch of people, he's literally got the playbook, I swear. Um, he's he's conned enough people and dug enough of a hole that the the anti-weather modification crowd, although I proudly wear that flag, I know that's not where we're going to win any battles, and we're never getting out of the hole we've dug. I mean, we've got people scared of literally condensation trails in the sky these days. And, you know, it, it's about this time in the conversation whenever somebody's, you know, starts to forget that I said it's real and they're doing it in secret. You need to take it from somebody who is really, really good at this stuff and understands the math and the science who still says, yeah, it's happening, but – Maybe if, if anybody wonders why that we've been pounding on this front gate for over a decade and made no progress, it's because anyone with even the most baseline understanding of science or math looks at this chemtrail thing and says, you guys are clueless. You have no idea what you are saying. Um, things that literally just don't make any sense at all. Um, and it's. It's basically the chemtrail next rad hoax from decades ago all over again. Uh, it worked so well about 25 years ago that a man named Dutch Sense, try, Michael Janich, tried to pull it again in 2009, 2010, and 2011. Except this time it was with a new angle, the harp rings. Um, it ended up failing after a couple of years when – he got big enough that people were actually starting to pay attention and professors got sick of getting asked about him and he was thoroughly, thoroughly debunked. Um, but it was literally a word for word script exactly what the, the hoax that the other Hoagland pulled 25 years ago. There was a frustrating element about putting in the next rad weather stations. Some folks wanted them. Other folks didn't want them. Uh, the folks who wanted them were saying we're going to have much better hail uh, and tornado forecasting, forecasting of all types with this. And the other crowd said, no, well, you're probably not because you're going to be confused by all the false returns and the rings and the triangles and the squares and the ray beams, especially as they interact with the signal that's coming out of airports. And it's going to make it look like there's rings of precipitation and rings in the clouds that aren't really there. And it's going to not only confuse you, but it's going to confuse and scare the public. And they decided, well, no, we can figure that out and still do the hail and the tornado forecasting. And it turns out they were actually right. They can do that even better. And the folks who were saying nay initially were wrong. But they were so frustrated that, uh, you know, before that was all proven, that when the initial decision came and they, they didn't get their way, they started the next rad hoax uh, with chemtrails and harp and all this other stuff. And basically it was to give all this stuff a bad name. These guys were frustrated that the science community didn't listen to them. Um, turns out they were wrong, but, um, you know, they, they started this hoax about 20 years ago, about a decade ago, it was brought back and it's, it appears it's coming back again here in 2020. Well, so it's worth mentioning that, uh, 
the person behind What in the World Are These Brain Dead documentary, Michael Murphy, just uh, passed away in his sleep a few days ago. But you know, he's he's. I, I'm sorry to hear that, and I I'd, I'd actually love to mention that he is not a plant. Um, he was somebody who um, he didn't have the science and math training, uh, but he, his heart was in the right place. He was asking he, questions. He he never lost. I remember I was at the Conscious Life Expo, uh, and he was actually on the geoengineering panel with me in 2015. And I remember I, I said basically what I was saying to you, like, look, we need to get our heads out of our backside and stop just wanting to see something that we can scream at, stop wanting to see enemies everywhere and start doing this in a logical way. And it was basically the whole, hey, chemtrail community, I'm on your side, but you guys have got yourself spun up and you don't know what you're doing. Let's sort of refocus here and be a lot better as a community. And I'll be darned if he didn't stand up and clap when I was done talking. And he came up to me afterwards and he was a real good guy. I'm very sorry to hear he's gone. Oh, you didn't know. Okay. Let me ask you this. I am neutral in a lot of stuff, and I don't have the scientific background to say if it's this or that. But I remember before the late 90s, I remember the skies that were not like they are today. And I see this checkerboard skies. And I mentioned this area of Mexico that I spent time in. Just a quick story. Years ago, I was sitting down by myself at the beach, and I see this lonely plane, looked like a commercial aircraft. Once it becomes part of the demarcation of the city where I was, all of a sudden it starts releasing the white whatever it was. It stops and then comes back. It does the same thing. And before you know it, this lonely plane blocked in a square completely the town where I was. I immediately thought, you know what? This is not natural. Why are they, why are they doing this? I call the Mexican Air Force because I'm curious. And it was transferred to somebody who told me, these planes are not ours, and I cannot comment any further. Now, what do you say about that? <laughs> I've heard a hundred stories like that with nobody ever saying anything else like that. My challenge to everybody, which I made years ago, was, hey, you want to call out chemtrails? Okay, show me that there wasn't the appropriate water vapor at the height of that airplane, because all of that information exists. There's no airplane you can look up at the sky and not find on one of those four big apps. But what about and the patterns? Which patterns? The, 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 the grid square patterns? Pa yeah, the grid patterns. First of all, it's not a grid. It's not actually a square grid pattern. What's happening is very, very high traffic lanes cross each other. And so you got a high traffic lane and then a perpendicular crosswind. You get one plane going every minute there and you're 100 miles down the line. It's going to look like line after line after line is coming at you from one direction. You'd be like, well, what is this? There's just lines of, of cloud coming at me in the sky. Well, actually, they're all going through the same part of the sky. It's called an air travel lane. They've had to drastically change those when there was about a 25 to 30 X increase in the amount of flights over about a two decade period. They've had to wildly change the traffic patterns in the sky to the point where they do throttle them through areas such that if you are under a high traffic area, it's going to look like there's nothing but different trails over your head. But you also got to realize that it's not like all of those things just came over your head and did that all at once. And then they just sat there. No, they're all being fed through those different, um, you know, those, be, those different highways for, for the, for the airplanes to go through, which they have to take pretty well right now. And which, you know, believe it or not, are pretty conducive to what they're actually doing. Now you take that and you also factor in, that, okay, there's not just 20 to 30 times the number of planes up there now. The engines are 100 times stronger. They're chopping the air more. They're more efficient with their fuel burning, a.k.a. the production of water vapor. The atmosphere is becoming more electrified and more dust, more water vapor attracted to it. I mean, most people know that static electricity attracts dust. That's what a Swiffer duster is. But water vapor is attracted to it too. Literally every single thing that you would expect to be changing. the. I mean, you could 
if you could fly, I could put you a mile up in the sky right now, hand you a driver to say, take a swing, big guy, and you're going to produce a contrail up there with your driver, you know, or a three iron, you know, just just swing in a golf club. That's what's happening to our sky right now. There's more water because the planet has been hotter. There's more electricity. There's more juice to the sky. It's easier to form the clouds. There's more water vapor coming out of the engines. They're more strongly chopping. They're being fed through these air traffic highways that are making some areas very, very clear. And what's interesting is they're it used to be where no matter where you were in the United States, you could see an airplane above you at at some point, in some point in the sky at all times. No matter what time, day, night, you know, north, south, east, west, if you looked up, you could see an airplane somewhere in the sky. It's not like that anymore. Either you're in the region where there's the, you know, the air traffic or the air traffic's not going over you and you literally see nothing above well, you. Well, let me ask you this. So – Condescension, tra condescension trails, shouldn't they dissipate in a matter of seconds or minutes? No, and, absolutely uh, not. Absolutely not. What? So I, I remember I, I, I wanted to see if, the, if this would work. I put a bunch of photos up from the 30s, from the 40s, from the 50s, from the 60s, from the 70s. And not only did they all look the same, I told everyone that these were chemtrail shots from last month. Now, one person was astute enough to say, Ben, why are these all really old airplanes? <laughs> Other than that, you cannot tell the difference. Now, the difference that maybe if they're lasting a little bit longer, it's because there's more water vapor. There's more electricity. They've been chopped more. What about all this scenario, though? I mentioned. You see two or three days of the same patterns, and you attribute this to the amount of planes that are flying at any given time. Well, what happens, say, on a Wednesday? All of a sudden, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. Is it the atmospheric conditions that are yes. causing it to disappear? That, that would be the atmospheric conditions part of it I mentioned. Because just as easily as you can find that airplane above your head on four or five different apps, you can find the amount of water vapor, the temperature, the wind speed at every height above your head as well. It's very, very easy to do. My challenge was, okay, if you don't think that's a condensation trail, show me why. And I have not had anybody in eight years actually pull it off, actually show me something. And with the data, you know, have any rational reason to think it wasn't a condensation trail. I've had a lot of people try at first. A lot of people didn't understand exactly what they were supposed to do, uh, But, you know, it, it got to the point where people stopped trying because they were realizing that, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's just these 25 other things that Ben talks about and which are provable and which we see effects of all across the world. It's not like these things Ben talks about aren't real because, yes, they are real. We see these things happening all over the world. Well, then you have to ask yourself, what else happens? You know, if you get caught in a thunderstorm outside, you are not the only thing that gets wet. The ground all around you get, you know, gets wet too. It's not the kind of thing where you can avoid it. This is the kind of thing where if all of those other things I'm mentioning are getting you wet, maybe you should look and see what's happening to the ground because that's what's happening to the airplanes. That's the explanation for why they look different in the sky. That's why Mamata's clouds are at different heights than they once were. It's why roll clouds are being seen more predominantly uh, in front of storm systems in the Midwest than they once were. It's going to start changing hurricane tracks before too long. Uh, and believe me, we are ants. The most effective weather modification thing we can do is cloud seeding. And that works at about 4%. Solar radiation management, AKA chemtrails, which is by the way, those have to be released in the stratosphere And planes in the stratosphere, you cannot see without binoculars, okay? You cannot see them in the stratosphere without binoculars. Um, if you see them and you see them putting stuff out, it's not stratospheric release. That's down here in the troposphere. Those aren't chemicals. That's water vapor. When there's the, the chemicals that people are talking about spraying, this is where you know people get mistaken. That, that is in the stratosphere where that is done. 
And that's at about 0.1% effective. Let's move to California for a second. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago where the meteorologists were talking about that fires were going to become a new thing, almost like a meteorological way of life for every year. Now they have these freak, rare fire tornadoes happening. What causes the fire tornadoes, especially in this area of the world these days? Well, uh, what they say causes a fire tornado is exactly what causes a fire tornado. Strong winds uh, and heat, basically. It's there. There's no sort of uh, special, you know. There's no sort of special explanation for a fire nado or anything like that. Um, they are often seen in controlled burns. Actually, uh, whenever they misjudge the wind speed, um, or when the wind comes out of nowhere, such that the heat had been building and building and building in one area, and oh, all of a sudden we've got a cross breeze. Yeah, they're going to maybe the upflow and the cross breeze catch each other and they start rotating around one another. Just like um, remember that person who brushed by your shoulder earlier. Now yeah. you're a foot apart and you grab each other's arm and somehow you just start twirling faster and faster around each other kind of thing. What about, and, uh, you know, oh, sorry, finish your statement. Oh, no, I was going to say, you know, once you get past the whole why am I holding the arm of this person? I don't know thing. You begin to realize uh, this is, this happens to the wind as well. You may have heard, what is it? Uh, California Edison, some of Pacific electric, I believe some of these that are disconnecting electricity, maybe for a week when the fires are happening, that that seems sensible to some people. You want to just be able to have everybody safe. But at the same time, I hear that amateur radio or ham radio repeaters are being removed or delinked from the CAL fire. Why would that be if you are out of electricity and the only way for you to communicate would be ham radio? Any idea? Have you studied this at all? Um, the situation's not quite as dire as they're suggesting. Um, I know that, for example, there's, you know, they're trying to do more with other kinds of communication. Uh, they're trying to harden even things like cell phones and, and cell phone chargers. Um, and, you know, there are there are places where they are talking about doing certain things, but they haven't actually gone to the full extreme yet. Um, I don't know of any area that's actually been cut off for days from power and had their ham station taken out as well. Um Have you heard of anything like that? No, not at all. I just remember during the fires, the news came out, and I have a few sources here that said that they were they were planning to just remove the budget for the antenna sites for the ham radio operators, rendering them, you know, useless. But we have to take a one and only break. I want to ask you a question, and I'll get your answer on the other side. This is a question you probably get all the time. If the governments of the world knew of an impending extinction-level event approaching... Do you think they would tell us? We'll get your answer on the other side. Now, how can people learn more about your work? I know you have many websites and social media platforms, so tell us. Uh, well, there are many heads to the Hydra, but the body is space. Uh, you know, the body of Space Weather News is actually the YouTube channel, uh, the Suspicious Observers YouTube channel. All the websites, the book, the app, the conferences, which will resume again if uh, this you know, COVID-1984 pandemic ever ends. And <laughs> like uh, yeah, I would say the free stuff on YouTube is the body, the nexus, the place where everything else stems from. So uh, it's easy to find and it's free. COVID-1984, I like that. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with my special guest, Ben Davidson, once again, back to Veritas. And part two, we'll dive deeper and we have a lot of great questions and comments coming your way. This is Mel Hostelrick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting 
Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.